1982, the late Francis Schaeffer wrote a book titled, titled The God Who Was There. I was going to use that title for the sermon, but while I don't mind a little plagiarism here and there, it did sound a bit self-serving. So we're going to go with the, the God who was present. And while Schaefer's purpose in his book was a little bit different than ours today, he did ask a question that is very important for us to begin uh, our, our time together. The question was this. Do you believe that God exists and that he is a personal God and that Jesus Christ is God, remembering that we are not talking of the word or idea God, but of the infinite personal God who is there? It's a good way to start. And this may seem like an unnecessary question for believers, but while we might express it in different ways, believers can sometimes struggle with that question. I struggled with that question. When I was a young Christian, I regularly met with a person who discipled me. His name is Keith. I've mentioned him here before. And one time when we met together, I was struggling with my relationship with God. And it wasn't because of sin or anything else. I just didn't feel like God was close. In fact, I told Keith that I couldn't sense God's presence. And I told him that it seemed my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. He gave me an answer that at the time wasn't all that satisfying but it was also very important. If you want to know the answer, you're going to have to stay awake for the rest of the sermon. (laughs) We're going to look today at God's omnipresence and God's divine presence. We're going to talk about God's presence then, God's presence now, and then a little bit about practicing God's presence. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your presence in us and with us. Even when we don't feel it, Father, you're still there. And we praise you for that. And uh, as you are there, and as you're in us, and as you're with us now, Father, we ask that you'd uh, make your presence known to us and help us to understand a little bit more about your presence and what you do in our lives because of it. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, God's omnipresence and God's divine presence. They're closely related ideas, but we're not directly talking about God's omnipresence today. The biblical doctrine of God's omnipresence teaches that God is everywhere present and is not limited to any location or any physical space. David understood God's omnipresence and he understood God's divine presence. In Psalm 139, 7 through 10, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's omnipresence and his divine presence are both referenced in this passage. David says you can't escape from God. There's nowhere you can go where God isn't. He is everywhere. That's his omnipresence. Yet the idea of God's divine presence is a comfort to David. In verse 10 he says, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God personally guides and holds David, which speaks of God being personally present with David. That's his divine presence. Divine, God's divine presence in the Old Testament is uh, really remarkable when you begin to really look at it and think about it. First of all, God has a desire to be present with his people. And we first learned of that right in the beginning, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. God created a lot of things. Stars, planets, galaxies, comets, Kentucky bluegrass, redwoods, 
mountains, fruit flies, trout, dinosaurs, geckos, penguins, cows, dogs, gorillas, leeches, octopus, etc. The only part of his creation that was made in his image was you and me. And that's because he wanted to have a relationship with his people. But there's more. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, this verse introduces the judgment by God on Adam and Eve for their sin. But what I want us to notice here is that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that suggests that God, this was a regular occurrence, that God regularly walked in the Garden of Eden and he would meet with Adam and Eve and he would spend time with them and he would converse with them. God wants to be present with his people. And then you go to Genesis 12, and I promise here we're not going through every book of the Bible today. I just want you to know that. In Genesis 12, 1 and 2, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. Listen to what God says here to Abram. God says, I will show you, I will make you, and I will bless you. God's, whatever God's plans for Abram were, they were personal. And that's a marker of God's divine presence, his personal presence. It's not that just that he is near. It's that he is near to you, and he's near to me. And then, what about God's dwelling in the Old Testament? The primary word for, for uh, dwell in, in uh, the Hebrew is shakan. And it was originally a nomadic word that described dwelling in tents. It came to be used to describe God dwelling with his people. And except for a few individuals to whom God gave the Holy Spirit, David, for example, God's dwelling was primarily a national or a corporate dwelling. God's dwelling became a sign that God favored his people. In 1 Kings 6.13, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. God's corporate or national presence with Israel was manifested in four ways. First, there was a fire and cloud. The fire and cloud were just not beacons for the Israelites to follow. You need to remember that. As the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, God would lead them by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. And these weren't just beacons. They were actually God's presence. Numbers 14, 13 and 14. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So in the fire and in the cloud, God was in their midst. In the fire and cloud, God was said to be face to face with Israel. So even here, God's personal presence is seen. And then there was the glory of God, which, while associated closely with the cloud, it's not the same. God's glory was personal to the nation and indicated his dwelling with his people. Once the Ark of the Covenant had finally been placed in the temple in Jerusalem, in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In a vision, Ezekiel saw God's glory in the temple. Ezekiel 8, 4, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. And David, referring to the tabernacle, Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place 
where your glory dwells. God's dwelling in the temple would become a focus of the Israelites for prayer, even if they were not present in Jerusalem. They could pray toward the temple, and in doing so, pray to the presence of God there. Jonah knew this. After Jonah had been swallowed by the fish, he prayed, which is a good idea when you get swallowed by a fish. In, in Jonah 2.7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah knew God's presence there. And then there's this thing in the Old Testament called the name of God. We don't hear about this very much, but it is important to understand for our purpose this morning. The idea of the name in Jewish understanding is much more than a symbol. It was the very presence of God, even the person of God. In Exodus 23, 20 through 22, God says to Moses, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. The name of God in this passage is a person or an angel. More properly, the name was the person, this, this person who would be leading the Israelites. And not just a person, not just any angel, but a person who has the authority for, to forgive sins. This can only be God. The name would fight for Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land. And look again at verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I'll be an enemy to your enemies. This is God. This is his presence. Israel understood this as God's personal presence in the temple. 1 Kings 9, 1-3, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So if you put these things together, the fire, the cloud, the glory, in the name, we get a picture of God's divine presence as much more than a comforting thought. Like, no, God's with us. We say that a lot. God was present with the Israelites. His presence went with them as they traveled, stayed with them when they pitched the tabernacle, and remained personally with them in the temple in Jerusalem. And while the presence of God for Israel was centered nationally on the temple, there is yet even more a personal quality of his presence. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God's presence today. When you look at the New Testament and compare it to the Old Testament in terms of God's presence, the comparisons are striking. But the New Testament goes a lot further than the Old Testament does. First, we can talk about God's dwelling and glory in the New Testament. John the Apostle, in his gospel, immediately identifies the word, which conceptually is not very different than the name in the Old Testament. He identifies the word that was God and was with God, and he establishes Jesus as God. In John 1, 1 through 5, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's the creator, which is a function, by the way, reserved only for God in the Old Testament. The Word brought light that reveals and overcomes darkness. He also brought life, and life in John's Gospel is understood as eternal life. And then you go down to John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, that is the Creator, the light, the life, became like us and dwelt with us. And just like in the Old Testament, dwelt here was the Greek word for a tabernacle, meaning to reside. A direct connection to the Old Testament understanding of God's dwelling in Israel. In Christ on earth, Jesus dwelt in person, personally, with his people. Another connection of the Old Testament is that John and the others saw, God, saw God's glory in Jesus. This glory is of the only Son. The term is reserved, of course, for Jesus, the one and only, the unique Son of God, who is God. But here is God's glory, not confined to the temple, but in the person of Jesus Christ for all to see God's presence. The apostle could not have helped but connect the glory of Christ with the glory of God in the temple. And as the fire and the cloud, and especially the glory, were physical manifestations of God in the Old Testament for Israel. Jesus was the physical expression of God in the New Testament. Jesus was present with the disciples. God was present with the disciples. He was with them. And then there's the idea of residence. The idea of God's residence with his people finds expression in the notion of abiding. John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Derek preached through the Gospel of John, and he preached uh, a lot out of John 15 and talking about abiding, and there's a lot in that passage about how we need to abide with Christ. But I want to focus on Christ abiding with us for a moment. The Greek word translated abide in most translations means to reside or to remain. The word suggests a permanent condition where the relationship is cemented by those who participate in it. The marriage between a man and a woman carries this meaning, however, imperfectly. The abiding in this passage is not a mutual agreement to remain together as in a marriage. It is a relationship where Christ is the sole source of energy and power. It is only through Christ residing in me and you that anything can be accomplished, that any fruit will grow. As the angel in whom was the name of God would be the one to go before Israel and defeat her enemies, so it is Jesus residing in his people that will accomplish fruit and accomplish victory. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then there's the idea of the temple. Probably the strongest, strongest parallel with the Old Testament concerning God's presence is the presence of the Holy Spirit in believers. The connection gains strength when we consider how God views us individually and corporately. 
In 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, Peter uses the image of the temple to describe the people of God. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Peter uses the word household, he's referring to the temple. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, where Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul makes clear that we are individually each a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul combines the imagery of the temple and of God's dwelling in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined grows together into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The New Testament equates God's people, you and me, and anyone who have believed on Jesus Christ, both corporately and individually, as God's temple. Any first century Jew reading or hearing this would not think of anything else but the Old Testament temple where God resided. But here, Christ is making his people into his temple, corporately and individually, where he dwells through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And, and catch this as, as you think about it. We are individually temples of the Holy Spirit, but we are also a temple of God corporately together. And then there is the Holy Spirit. In the same farewell discourse where he spoke about abiding, Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15 through 23. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will not will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This passage is packed, and we don't have time to go through it all, but I want to highlight four things. First of all, the statement in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father give you the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, there is not a condition of receiving the Holy Spirit. That is, it's not a step before the Holy Spirit is given to you. It's a description of those who receive the Spirit, those who love Christ. In verse 16, it says the Spirit will be with believers forever. This is permanent. The Holy Spirit will always be with believers and never taken away. You might remember Saul, the first king of Israel. God gave him the Holy Spirit. But because of Saul's rejection of God... Eventually, God took the Holy Spirit away. Can't happen with us. Can't happen with any believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will always be with believers. It is permanent. 
In verse 17, the Spirit is both with and in believers. With suggests the corporate presence of the Spirit in the church. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was in the temple, the corporate presence in Israel. For New Testament believers, the Spirit is also in each believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the divine presence of God through the Holy Spirit lives in you. God resides in you. The presence of God in verse 23 through the Holy Spirit is not just a presence, it's familial. God and Jesus make their home with each believer. There is no parallel to this in the Old Testament. The Jewish expectation was that God would dwell with his people at the end time. Jesus is teaching that that expectation would be experienced now, at least in part. One commentator notes that the word for home here is the same word used in John 14.2 for rooms, where he says, in my Father's house are many rooms, are many homes. As the disciples would look forward to the fulfillment of the promise to dwell with God in these rooms in the future, that promise finds fulfillment now through the Holy Spirit. It's, you know, we go through our daily lives and we, you know, do what we need to do and we have our families and we have our jobs and we have school or whatever. We just daily go through things. And it's easy not to remember that God lives in us. But think about that for a second. Think about it for, for a moment right here. Right here in this room, God is among us. The Holy Spirit is among us. Right here, right now. That you feel it or don't feel it is not important. God is here. Also, God is in you. Each individual person in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is in you through the Holy Spirit. Even in Scott. (laughs) In Mike. In Earl. In every single person, God is in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing to consider. What an amazing gift that is that God has given us. It is amazing. So, back to my question. If you stayed awake, you're, you did good. I bet there are a lot of times, maybe sometimes, that you don't feel God's presence very much. That was the essence of my question that I asked my friend Keith at the beginning of the sermon here. His answer to me, and my answer to you, is that what you feel about that is not the important issue. And that was the unsatisfying part of his answer. (laughs) But the important issue is that both the promise and the fulfillment of God dwelling with you and making his home with you is the reality. God does dwell in you. He is making his home in you. you. He is making his home in you. You have the real Holy Spirit in you all the time. God's divine presence is in you. That's the first point. The second point is the question of how can I know more deeply? How can I be more aware of God's presence? I have four suggestions. And there, are, there have been books that are, have been written on this, and I certainly don't claim any special insight. But I can just give you some of the things that, that I know. For, to to, to uh, preface this, though, if we're going to be fully aware of God's presence, or at least more aware of God's presence, we need to be intentional about it, and we need to seek time with him. You know, we're all busy. We have jobs. Uh, we have lives to live. We have families to get by. We have cars that break down. We have homes that need to be repaired. We have all these things. Very, very busy, and I get that. And, and I've, I've, you know, I've been retired now for about three years, 
Um, and I'm probably as busy now as I was when I was working. So we get that, and I understand that. But we need to take time. We need to stop and take time to be with God and to be intentional about it. So four things. First thing, uh, we need to acknowledge that God dwells in you and then live as if that is true. I was getting my car this car repaired this week, just the other day, uh, Tuesday. I knew I'd be there a couple of hours, and because I had an early appointment, I was mostly alone in the waiting room. Actually, I was completely alone in the waiting room, except for an occasional employee who would walk back or forth. I was alone. And so, you know, during a time like that, most folks probably do things like uh, read or check your smartphone or... Uh, if you're like me, take a nap. But as I was sitting there, alone, the Holy Spirit prompted me instead to acknowledge and remember that his, he was in me and with me. The Holy Divine Presence was residing in me, even there in the waiting room. I praised him and I thanked him and I acknowledged him for that night. And I asked for his guidance for that day and, I, and for his wisdom while sitting alone in the waiting room. Except I wasn't alone. Praise God for that time. Then I checked out my smartphone. (laughs) And God speaks to us through his word, his word preached and taught, his word shared in a grace group through other believers, through circumstances and other means. But we need to be in God's presence to know God's presence in us. Secondly, take time to listen to God's voice. Jesus said that if we invite him in, in Revelation 3.20, you may remember the verse, says, uh, Behold, if I stand at the door and knock, and if you let me in, I'll come in and have a meal with you. People often use that as a tool for evangelism, and that's not a bad thing, but that's not what the verse is talking about. The verse is talking about believers welcoming welcoming Jesus in so he can be with them. And think about the image. He says, if he knocks and we let him in, He'll come in and he'll share a meal with us. That image reinforces his presence with us, but also brings up the image of two people sitting at a table, dining together, having a conversation in a one-on-one setting. Wouldn't it be great to be able to sit down with Jesus and have a conversation with him? Well, you can. And so I suggest that you make a habit of, in your times of prayer to invite Jesus to speak with you. My practice is to have my regular time of prayer, worshiping, confessing, receiving forgiveness, praying for my needs, praying for the needs of others. And then I invite Jesus to speak and ask him if he has anything to say to me. And I quiet myself for a few minutes listening. And I do hear his voice from time to time. It's not audible, but he speaks to my heart. And if you do this, he will speak to your heart. Not every time, but he will speak. And how do you know if what he speaks is really him speaking? <laughs> well, it'll be in alignment with the scriptures, that's for sure. And almost always it'll be personal to you. God, I don't think very often tells Nate here to go tell uh, Karen here that she needs to uh, get her life together. When God speaks to us, it'll be mostly for us and to us and personal to us. And then the third way, if you're not sure about something that you think Christ might have said to you, check it out with someone you trust. A second, or a, a ne- the next suggestion I have is a thing called Lectio Divina. 
That's simply Latin, and I don't know Latin. But I looked it up, and it simply means divine reading. I don't want this to sound, you know, kind of esoteric or ritualistic, but it's a practice. And it's a practice of inviting, again, to invite Jesus in to speak to you, but it's around God's word. And the way to do that, uh, by the way, if you have the sermon notes, I, I have listed those, those steps right there in the sermon notes. Very simple. First thing you do is simply read a portion of scripture, probably a shorter portion, um, three, four, five verses maybe. And then reflect on that passage and then write down your thoughts, whatever they are. And after that, pray based on what you read and based on the thoughts. And then finally, again, ask God if there's anything he wants to say to you. And it will be focused around what you read and and the thoughts that you had. And when God does speak to you, and he will from time to time, write down what he says. Be a great way to journal. To have these times with God and these experiences with God and to record what he says to you. And then finally, practice God's presence daily. There's a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a collection of conversations and letters and sayings of a fellow named Brother Lawrence. I don't have time here to kind of give you his biography, but he's a very simple man who was injured in the Thirty Years' War and uh, could barely walk. And he became a monk. And he spent 15 years' assignment for the first 15 years of being a monk was to work in the kitchen. And then his assignment after that was to spend the next several years until he died working in the sandal shop of the monks. And uh, there are many things that he said, and, and again, I have listed several of those things on the back of your, of your notes. There are three, though, I want to highlight. Brother Lawrence said, How can we pray to him without being with him? How can, be we, how can we be with him without thinking of him often? And how can we think of him but by a holy habit we should form of it? He's simply saying... Be with God. Talk with God. Converse with God and do it often. He then said, we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. It is a shameful thing to quit his conversation and think of trifles and fooleries. I would agree. But I like the idea of continually conversing with him. And the third thing he said, simply, be always with God. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Let's pray. Father, as I started this time together, I thank you for your presence. And uh, I thank you again hopefully a little more deeply. Thank you for your presence with us. It's, it's hard for us to fathom as human beings, Father, that you're in us. It's hard to fathom as human beings, Father, that you're among us, yet you are. Your word makes that clear. May we be people, Father, who seek out your presence in us. May we be people, Father, who take time to be with you, to converse with you, to invite you in and to have a meal to be with you. And Father, we ask as we seek you and as we seek to spend time with you, as we seek to be with you, Father, that you would make your presence known to us even deeper. We we ask, Father, that you would speak to us. We ask, Father, that you would converse with us 
so that we'd be not only aware of your presence, Father, but know your love for us, the love that sent Christ to die for us. Thank you, Father, for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen.